Paula. What's up? Hi, so um, if you don't know me, I'm Ashley Jolly. I'm the current, um, oh, actually sit down first. Take a seat. That was the one thing I was told to do. <laughs> one job. Um, but yeah, I'm Ashley Jolly. I'm on staff with Fellowship Fable for the next year um, as a college resident, and I have absolutely enjoyed getting to know a lot of you through tonight and through our small groups. Um, just a couple announcements. One, on your way in, you probably saw that huge sign outside for uh, New Life Ranch. So, awesome. Who's, who's been a part of New Life Ranch? Wow, a lot of you. Awesome. So, if you have more questions about that, on your way out, they'll be in the foyer. And if you were here last week, you heard a little bit about CR, Celebrate Recovery. And if you would like to be involved in that or even know more about it, we're gonna have a link in bio on our Instagram. And those uh, services are on Friday nights. So we would love to see our college students involved in it. Um, so now if you join me in prayer for the night. Jesus, um, thank you so much that we live in a place where we get to gather together and worship you and get to know who you are. I pray for the hearts in this room. I pray that we each if we don't know you, that we come to know you and that we get to rest in who you are today, that we get to learn about your word and that we get, get to experience the gospel of grace that's through your son, Jesus Christ. In your son's name I pray, amen. Thanks, Jolly. You guys can remain seated. Um, I'm sure over the past few weeks you've heard me mention uh, the Creatives Initiative at some point. Um, this is my last plug for a little while, but um, if you are interested um, in serving this church body, um, specifically in Fellowship College, um, with your art, your expression of art in worship. Um, we're having a meeting right after service tonight. It should only last about half an hour or so. Um, we're just gonna talk about um, some cool ideas. And um, we've got, uh, I've, I've seen so much cool art, some poetry, some collages, painting, just like really cool stuff that's coming in, uh, that's been coming in. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. So if you are still interested in that, you are more than welcome you haven't submitted an application or form for that yet, you're more than welcome to stay. It's right after service today. Like I said, about half an hour, we'll stay in this room. Um, but with that, I wanted to introduce to you guys um, my buddy Joel. So Joel uh, filled out one of those forms and submitted some poetry, and, and it was awesome. And so I invited him to come and to share some of that poetry um, with you guys this evening. So if you could just... Um, and listen to this, to this awesome story behind his poetry, and, um, and I hope that you guys, your affections are stirred for the Lord reading this. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so poetry has sort of been a random thing that has, uh, you know, I've continued to um, sort of integrate it into things that I do uh, throughout college, and one of the really cool things I've had the opportunity to sort of experiment with is just in my quiet time every morning, you know, sort of synthesizing uh, the things that I'm learning uh, in the Word of God um, through that and, uh, you know, being able to look back at the quiet times that I've had and just really re-experience the emotions that I had in that moment. And I think um, when we get to create things, we sort of get to look, uh, you know, at our creation the same way that God looks at us um, because ultimately He's our creator. And that's just a really cool relationship we get to have. Uh, but for this particular poem, I sort of was reading Isaiah 30, and there were a few verses that really uh, just jumped out at me. Um, and I think right now, in the season of midterms, it's so frequent that our quiet time sort of takes a backseat. Our relationship with God takes a backseat. Um, and, you know, that's never fun uh, when we have to go to those places. But ultimately, when we come back to Him, uh, we experience healing. 
And that's what this verse is saying. It says, you will be delivered by returning and resting in the Lord. And uh, verse 19 says, the Lord is waiting to be gracious to you. He's waiting for you to come back. And not only that, but it says, as soon as he hears you, he will answer you. And so that is sort of the foundation for this poem. And it's my conviction that poetry is best experienced with your eyes closed. So if you want to close your eyes and listen to this, um, I'd love to share this poem with you. All that I had to do to return to your face and embrace rest in you, to think with purity, with knowledge of you as my potter, to sit in peace and confidently proclaim your strength. All I had to do to surrender this burden and yield my path to yours and to dream it magnificently and flood myself with color, to look up and proclaim Celador with renewed spirit and grace, to be led with great vision and press into the mountain of Zion, to be still and know you and exalt you with all my heart, all that I had to do to revel in compassion and learn the way of life, to restore what the locusts had ate and give life to the dry fields, to bandage my very flesh with everlasting salvation, is say yes to your word, to your son, and to your gift. continue to worship. Let's stand together. There's not a man No. 
not a God who is powerless or unable or unwilling, but you are a God who is mighty to save and you do it. Father, we praise you and we thank you that when we were far from you, when we were far off, living in disobedience and rebellion, you did not leave us there, but you were mighty to save and you came and you saved us, Jesus. It is because of you salvation belongs to you, Jesus. So Father, I pray that as we're taught that we would learn that faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. That we would follow you, become your disciples, your servants. That we would learn how to live like you. So a world that needs light and needs guidance and needs hope and needs love will find it in us because we have you, Jesus. There's nowhere else we can look to find those things. Father, I pray for Garland when he comes up and say nothing more, nothing less than what you desire for him to say. We'd be touched by his words because they're your words. We love you. Man, y'all grab a seat. How's everybody doing? Good week? Once again, uh, last week I was here, and so I missed y'all. Like on Sunday night, I was thinking about y'all from Cancun. So uh, glad to be back. I didn't miss you uh, all that much. Uh, I was having a good time there. Um, so uh, I'm back. I'm glad to be back. Um, Glad to be back in here with y'all, getting to worship together, and I got to get something kind of off my chest real fast. This has nothing to do with the talk, uh, but it's just bothering me. It's annoying me, and I just got to I gotta kind of just let it out because it makes me angry, and uh, it's this. I don't understand what's going on with Auburn right now. If you, some of you didn't see it, but yesterday, Auburn had the exact same thing happen against Ole Miss that happened with us, and that a replay of something that was very clear and obvious got did not go how it was supposed to go because the SEC, for some reason, is in love with Auburn. It's making me frustrated. I'm not over the Auburn game yet, but the beach helped, okay? So that's, I need to get that out of there. If you're with me on this, you saw it. It's ridiculous. I hate Auburn. Chad Morris, stay there. Uh, in light of that, um, so if you think about it, when we look out at uh, different parts of our world, even here in our, in our culture in America, we see uh, oftentimes by the way that people dress or the way that with the things that they wear, oftentimes it'll identify or it'll signify uh, something about the group they're a part of or the values that they have or stuff that they think's important. Like a good example would be at Razorback Games, this is what they usually look like. Uh, well, they used to look like this, then we got really bad, but we're getting good again. Uh, so when you, when you look at Razorback Games, I'm always amused at Razorback Games when I go and I look over at the student section and there's always that group of guys who are obviously the pledges for whatever their fraternity is, especially in September when it's like a billion degrees outside and you look over and they've got the full suit on. A couple of you have it even tonight. The full suit, you're rushing. And what that suit does is it is identifying the group that you aspire to be and it's saying you are marking yourself as with that group. And this, this particular piece of clothing right now identifies something about what you value or something about uh, what you find to be important. This next thing, this next article of clothing or piece of jewelry, I think it's pretty clear. It, in my mind, it marks the person out expressly and exclusively as a huge tool, and it would be this. Like every time, I'm like, all right, that guy's a tool. If I see that, that guy's a tool. I don't know why. I mean, they should know that and stop doing it. That's what everybody else thinks about it. Your parents went to A&M that was the wrong choice for them. Uh, we also see, um, like, if you see stuff like this, this is identifying this particular group as a part of this, this, they've dedicated themselves to the Catholic church and service to the church. 
It's something that's expressing value. It's expressing a group affiliation. It's saying, this is important to me. Now, when we think about that and looking at what we're going to see tonight in 1 Thessalonians, Paul, as he moves into the pastoral concerns that he has for this church, is going to be giving followers of Jesus something that is very clearly distinguishing them from everybody else in the culture. He's going to say, this thing marks you as different. It marks you as with us, and it's really, really, really important. And that thing that Paul is going to begin to address as he moves into this section of the letter is how Christians interact with sex. Our sex ethic is the thing that will mark us when we go out into the broader world. It's that important. It distinguishes us. And what we're going to do, I'm just calling this a radical view of sex, or or maybe even a Christian view. The, The Christian view is a radical view of what sexuality should and can be. But it's not what the culture thinks in Paul's day and what we're going to see in our day as well. Now, let me give three sort of uh, caveats for us, three guardrails as we move forward. Uh, The first is this. Anytime I think when I've been in church and the pastor, whoever starts talking about sex, uh, or when I've done uh, talked about sex up here uh, in a room like this, oftentimes I know that some of you, as soon as you hear this topic, there's, the, there's things in your past, things that happened to you, maybe some, something that somebody did to you, that they begin to well up. And this could be something that makes you want to run from this conversation. I just say we're so sensitive to that. And we hope that this is a safe place for you to be able to process through that thing that happened in your past and find healing from that. And so I just want you to know, you don't have to run. Uh, And so while somebody may have really wounded you and hurt you, we want this to be a place where you can find healing. The second would be this. Uh, Whenever topics like this come up, I often find that a lot of the people Uh, myself included oftentimes, the very first thing that shows up in my mind when Christians in church are talking about sex is all the laundry lists of the ways I failed. And usually what comes right on the backside of that is a lot of shame. And I I just want to say to you, if that's you right now, maybe that's things that happened in your past, things that you've done sexually in your past, maybe before you were a Christian, maybe while you were a Christian, maybe this was last night, that this is an okay place for you to come even with your struggle and be able to process that. We want to seek repentance, and we want to seek lives of holiness walking after Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is. And the third caveat would be this. There's probably several of you in the room that you don't follow Jesus, and you think the way that Christians think about sex is stupid, and that's okay. I'm really glad that you're here, and I hope that we can talk to you a little bit as well as we look at this. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Are we ready? Not making me feel it. Are we ready to do this? You're like, you're like, not really. You're, you're all like, not really. I don't really want to. All right, radical view of sex. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we dive in. Paul has transitioned. You can note it in your Bible. In the NIV, it says, this, says it this way. As for other matters. Go ahead and block that off. Everything that follows in chapter 4 on, Paul is now responding to issues that were brought up when Timothy went to this church and checked on him. Remember, Paul got ran out of Thessalonica. He sent Timothy to check on him. He came back and said, they're doing great. And then, almost certainly, said they've got a couple of issues. And now Paul begins to address those issues in chapter four and following. So we're gonna see these issues service. We looked at one of them last week when Roland was in here, and we're a little bit out of order. So just go with us, bear with us, we're out of order. This is what's going on. He's transitioning to these pastoral 
concerns. And the very first thing he's going to do is he's going to address the will of God. He says, I got a topic I want to talk about, and he addresses it first by saying, for this is the will of God. Now, time out. My bet is for many of you in the room, this concept of the will of God is something that causes an awful amount of confusion or maybe frustration or maybe it makes you feel kind of crippled. Like, what is the will of God? I Googled, what is God's will for my life earlier today? And there were 267 million entries under what is God's will for my life? And it's expressed in a whole bunch of different ways. Like, should I, should I keep dating this person? or dump them. God, what is your will for this? Uh, should we get married or not? Maybe some of you had this, this experience last year. Should I go to the U of A or should I go to Texas? Uh, should I go to the U of A or should I go to Baylor? Whatever that may have looked like for you. What's your will for my life? Should I go to Kaleo next summer or should I do this internship? Or when I graduate, should I get this job here locally or should I take this job where I have to move? What is your will for my life. And my bet is a lot of you, especially if you grew up in the church, have had this experience where you go, okay, God, uh, I, I want to do your will, and I want to know your will. It's important to me. So you take your Bible, you drop it open, and you point at a verse, and you go, what's your will? And you start reading. If you don't like that, you close it up again. You drop it again. What's your will? And you point. If you don't like that, when you try it three or four times, till you get something that sounds remotely like an uh, answer from God, some advice from God. Now, here's the issue. This is not a talk about what is God's will for your life. Uh, we did an Out of Curiosity on that podcast a few uh, weeks back. If you really want to go look into it, uh, we would love to process that over coffee or lunch with you as well. But notice what Paul says. When the Bible talks about God's will for your life, it's a little bit surprising what the answer is. It's not how I think a lot of us expect it to be. This sort of course that we're charting one decision at a time, and God has is, is got this map lined out. If we get it off, then we're going to go to hell or something. That's not what's going on. Notice what he says God's will is. He says, the will of God is your sanctification. But that doesn't help any of us because we're like, sanctification is one of those big, giant, Christian, churchy words that we kind of know what it means, but we kind of don't. We really don't care. Now, here's the problem. The word sanctification comes from the Greek word holy or holiness. And here's the problem with that. That's a churchy word that we really don't really know what it means, but we kind of think we do and we really don't care. So what does it mean? This is God's will, your holiness, your sanctification. For some reason, this is what comes into my mind as a way to illustrate this, and I think probably because it was important to my mom growing up. How many of you growing up had like the fine china? Raise your hand if you're in, in your house, you had the fine china that only came out. I want to see how many of us had this. So I want to see, here we go. So most of you. Okay, the way, if for those of you that didn't, here's how the fine china works. The fine china is the really expensive stuff. I never really understood it. It's the expensive stuff that you store in your house or you put it out on a, like on a big dresser or something. Everybody can see it. And then you take it down and you use it only like two times a year. If you were to take it down and go watch the football game like on Saturday, randomly, that would be like inappropriate use of the china. It's marked off. It's special. It's got a special task for a special purpose. You only use it for this special occasion. It's not like the common paper plates or the plastic plates that you use every day. This actually got me in a little bit of a wormhole on Google the other day because as I looked for this picture, I noticed the prices of some of these things. Let me just give you an example here. This is the Royal Deft Blue Peacock Plate, and it'll run you $13.75, which seems an uh, awful lot for that. Uh, you also get this one, 
the Royal Copenhagen Flora Danica Porcelain Surfwear Collection. And that'll drop you at $95.65. And the most expensive one I could find on a quick Google search was this freaking thing. This is the Mason Turin German Handmade Porcelain Bowl. Is that a bowl? Like, what do you even do with that? And it'll cost you a nice, cool $125. That's ridiculous. Now, here's the thing. I don't understand. What is it? Do you know what this is? I hear people saying what it is. What is it? A serving bowl? A, a cereal bowl? Like, what would you put in this? Would you put cereal in this? <laughs> that would be awesome. You put, like, uh, Lucky Charms in there? Um, Cocoa Puffs? So if you think about um, China, the way that China works, it's marked off for something special. And, and with these examples, you can tell that it has like an inherent value. The person that made it was trying to put beauty into it and onto it. It has an intrinsic worth in and of itself. But I don't really think that's exactly how the concept of holiness works biblically. We've got to get a little bit more nuanced. It's like it, but we've got to get a little bit more nuanced of what biblical holiness means. The guy that taught here last week, Nick Rowland, uh, his wife made this plate. It's the happy plate. She made it in a ceramics class back before they had their kid. And now, uh, every time they have a birthday in their house, they eat, that person whose birthday it is gets to eat their meal on the happy birthday plate. Now, the happy birthday plate, it's not as intrinsically beautiful, is it, as the other ones? I mean, you're like, all right, yeah, a, a beginner made this in a ceramics class. Like, that's not, doesn't have inherent value when you look at it. At the same time, it's been marked off for a very particular and special purpose. If I were to go to Nick's house and pull out the happy birthday plate and throw on it like a burger that I picked up on the way there, that would be really inappropriate. It would, it would be offensive to them because this plate is marked off. It's been made special. It's not special in and of itself. It's been made special. They've bestowed onto it value and worth. They've marked it out for a purpose. And I think we're close to the concept of the, the biblical concept of sanctification or holiness. It's to be designated or marked out, set apart for something amazing. It's to be special. It's to have value. And in the Christian sense, God bestows that value on us. God doesn't look around and go, where are the pretty ones? Where are the rich ones? Where are the connected ones? Those are the ones I'll take. No, no, no. He bestows value and bestows holiness he sets us apart based on his own goodness and his own favor. Paul, in another letter, says it this way. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, to be set apart. And the first thing we got to understand is when Paul says, as he's going to look at this concept of sex, he begins it here. You hear it. I love what Martin Luther, how he quotes this, puts this idea together. The reformer in the 1500s. God's love does not love that which is worthy of of being loved. Rather, he creates that which is worthy of being loved. Our sex ethic, our radical sex ethic, as Paul's going to unpack it, begins here. He says, this is God's will for your life. You know what it is? You've been set apart. You've been made special. God has bestowed on you value. Now go live like it. Go live like it. That's what sanctification means. You've been made special. Go live special. You're not like the common thing. You're the fine china. You're the happy birthday plate marked out for something special if you're a follower of Jesus in the room. He begins it here, and that's really, really important. We have to get the why before we get the what. Now let's look at what he 
tells us this radical sex ethic looks like. Let's move forward. Verse 3. It says, this is the will of God, your holiness, your growing in sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this word being translated for us from the Greek uh, as sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia, which obviously is where we get our word porn or pornography. Porneia in the Greek culture was a general word. It could mean a whole lot of different things. It meant any general uh, sex that people find to be weird or gross or different. Now, what the biblical authors are going to do in the New Testament is they're going to take this very general word, porneia. That doesn't, it's kind of hard to define it in Greek culture. And they're going to be hyper-specific with what that word means. In the New Testament, porneia is not a general concept. It's a specific concept. Here's what it is. Any sex practice, any sex act that is outside the context of one man and one woman in covenant marriage for life. The Bible is going to say over and over and over again in the New Testament, that is porneia. Here it's translated for us as sexual immorality. Now he continues, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Because after all, these are marked out as special. You should honor them. Not in the passion of lust. We've used this, we talk about this word all the time in here. The word translated for us, here it is again as lust, is the Greek word epithumia. That's an inflamed desire. Epi means over. Thumos is passion. So it's an over desire. A sexual desire, the Bible is going to say, is a, is a good thing. Sex in the right context is a beautiful thing, and yet an over-inflamed desire for that leads to burning stuff down. So not in the passion of epithumia, like the Gentiles who don't know God. It says, no, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Let no one transgress or wrong his sister in this matter. It's really important. This is radical in the first century world. Now, to understand why it's radical, we have to understand the first century world of the Roman culture. Let's take a look at it. In the Roman culture, their view of sex had really two big camps. Here they were. Sex was either seen as disgusting. It was something that you were to avoid. Remember philosophy 1201 class? Platonic philosophy is this. There's the world of the physical and the tangible with all of our urges and desires, things that we have here. Then there's the world of the forms of the immaterial, and that's the place we're trying to get back to. So we want to avoid all of these physical, tangible urges, and we want to become enlightened by only thinking about the ideals. And in Platonic philosophy, there were many in the Roman culture that were going, see, that's how we should be living. Sex is a base, gross, instinctual, nasty thing. And my bet is, there's probably some of us in the room, especially if you grew up in the South, in church, that you kind of have taken that view to sex as well. Like sex is something you're not supposed to talk about. Sex is something that you're not supposed to want. You're not supposed to do it except having babies. That's all. The only context for sex is making babies. And for some reason, some people in the South, especially in America, have made that our view of sex. It's kind of disgusting and gross. Stay away from it. Now, the only problem that's going to be the rest of the Bible. Like the way that the Bible talks about sex is going to be not affirming this top thing. Like let me give you an example. In another letter, Paul says to the Corinthians this. It says, now for the matters you wrote about, somebody in the Corinthian church has been influenced by this platonic thinking. He says, some of you say it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't go, and you're right, because it's gross. Stay away. Notice what he says. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now stop right there. In the Roman world, 
everybody, every man reading that would go, yes, you're right. She should yield because I am the man and I am at the top of the social food chain. It's a male-dominated patriarchal society. I like that, Paul. Good for you. The problem is the second half of verse 4. I hear all the time the Bible is male-centric against women. And what we do is when we say this, we miss some of these really radical things that Paul is saying that are totally not that. Look at the second half of this. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This is radical for first century Romans to be hearing. They'd be going, what, Paul? That's, that's weird. That's not right. Now, not only does the New Testament affirm that sex is not disgusting, but we have a whole book in our Bible dedicated to just talking about Sex, the beauty of sex in its right context. It's in our Old Testament. And even if you're hardcore into porn in here, you don't even love Jesus, it would make you blush. I promise you, you go read it, it'll make you blush. Don't believe me? Let me read some to you. Song of Songs opens this way. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Turn me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And later on, when they get to the chambers, he's going to describe what he sees as they undress before each other, before they get into it. And uh, here's what he says. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. I should try this on Sarah later. Uh, Your navel is like a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound. Oh, this did not go well, no. Your your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. By the way, he just keeps working up, all right? So if you think about it, the Bible is not affirming that sex is this gross, disgusting thing to be avoided. That's not the radical Christian sex ethic. If sex is bad, stay away. And if that's what you've thought, that's the view you've taken, that's the thing you've heard all your life, maybe because you grew up in the South or in the church, I hope that you can see that that's not what the Bible is affirming. What we're also got to see, though, is in the Roman culture, sex was deified. That means to be made God. It was elevated to this status. It was exalted to being the the supreme thing in life, the thing that gave you the most pleasure, the most joy, the the overwhelmingly awesome thing in Roman culture. In the temple uh, to Aphrodite in Corinth, just right down the road from Thessalonica, that temple had a 1,000 prostitutes that worked there every single day. When we look at, this is a a first century Roman brothel, and here's how they would work. Uh, This would be filled with water, and you'd have prostitutes all around here, and you'd have men in there, and they would be engaging in sex with all these women. And then if you wanted to, you'd go to one of these side rooms, and you can take your business in there. And this was not shamed. This was not seen as a bad, evil thing. What's, what's even more interesting, in the first century Roman world, it was very common for a, especially a Roman male citizen, to have at least four different kinds of sex relationships. You had your wife, who usually you married because of uh, money or because of uh, like political power, so it was more of an arranged thing, and you had sex with her so that you could make heirs, rich heirs of your money and stuff. But you also had your mistress, That was the person that was your companion that you had sex with because y'all were friends and she was your lover. You also had prostitutes, that some of those were prostitutes in brothels like this one. Others were prostitutes at the temple. And the way you worship is you go to the temple, have a big party, everybody drinks a lot, 
then you start having sex, and then you start sacrificing animals. Cool. Uh, and you would have sex at, with prostitutes. And lastly, you would, if you had slaves, if you owned slaves, you could have sex with any of them at any time you wanted to. And none of this was seen as bad, evil, wrong. It was expected. This is the way the culture was. Paul looks out in his day, and he sees a world that is sex-crazed, and he has the guts to make these kinds of statements. He says, no, 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 no. Your sex partner is your wife. That's it. This is radical in the first century world. Like anybody hearing this in, in Roman culture of Paul's day in the New Testament world would say, you guys are freaks. Are you serious? This is how you want to treat sex? Are you serious? You guys are weird. And now here's the thing. Nothing has changed. Nothing is different from this culture to our culture. Our culture looks at our sex ethic. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room and they think, you guys are freaks. Seriously? This is how y'all want to treat sex? Weird. Embrace it. You're going to have to embrace it. Now, let me give you an example. Just The bachelor's back. Bachelor fans. I don't like this current, what's her name? Claire? Yeah, I don't like her. Um, she's super annoying. She's, I mean, she's crazy. Like, she's crazy. Um, if you like her, I'm sorry. I don't like her. Uh, I, I hear they're getting rid of her anyway or somebody else. Maybe I like her. Um, if you think about The Bachelor or Bachelorette, uh, whenever a, per a person goes on there that's a virgin, especially if they're a virgin because they're saving themselves from marriage, not they're a virgin because they've been desperately trying to have sex, but they couldn't. They are a virgin because they're saving themselves from marriage. Uh, it always becomes the talk of the show. And if you're new to Sunday night, uh, I watch The Bachelor. My wife loves it. It's me trying to connect with her. And then what, when Bachelor starts, you will get a weekly running monologue of the latest Bachelor from me. And my staff team hates it. They keep telling me to stop, but I got the mic. Um, and so... The Bachelor, um, when these Christian virgin people are on there, it always becomes the talk of the show, and it's never favorable. It's never like, that's so noble and awesome. It is always mocked. It's always like, you gotta be kidding me. You're still living like, how backwards is this? It's never seen as this awesome thing to aspire to. Completely mocked. Uh, we, we view marriage as uh, followers of Jesus we say that marriage is a lifelong commitment with one partner, male and female. And our culture says, you guys are crazy. Like seriously, not just crazy, backwards, bigoted. We say that marriage is a lifelong commitment that's not primarily based on feelings and romance, but it's based on a commitment. Like when you get married, you're not saying, hey, as long as I feel it, this is going well, I'm in. But if, eh, if it doesn't, I'll be out. Our culture says, if you've lost the romance, if you're not in love anymore, why would you stay in a loveless marriage? Why would you stick around in this? Get out. Find something better. We, we, we say, as followers of Jesus, that sex, is in the, sex should be reserved for the context of one man and one woman in covenant. That flippancy with sex is, is gonna damage and cheapen Sex And our culture says you can just swipe one direction and hook up. It's not that big of a deal. Who cares? 
Uh, we, we say as followers of Jesus that living together before marriage intertwines the intimacy that's supposed to be built with sexual union, and it, de- it devalues both of those things and cheapens them. Uh, Sarah and I are watching Back Through Friends right now, and uh, when uh, Paul Rudd, what's his name in the show? Paul Rudd and Phoebe uh, are dating, and they decide to move in together. And when they do, they tell the other friends. And all the friends, uh, they're like, oh my gosh, congratulations, that's awesome. And what struck me is the audience, the audience gave a, a visceral, audible reaction, it went like this, oh, and then there was a huge clap. We're weird if you're a follower of Jesus in the room. We, we say that pornography damages our minds and it inflames our lust and it makes us, it cheapens the act of sex and it hijacks what's meant to be reserved for giving away to somebody. And our culture, culture says, not a big deal. Why not? You're feeling lonely, you're feeling frustrated, whatever, it's right there, no big deal. Billions and billions of dollars for the pornography industry. Can I, just, can I just tell you something? If you are a follower of Jesus, which I don't assume all of you are, I assume a lot of you are not, and you're just checking this thing out. Once again, we're so glad you're here. We're gonna talk to you in just a sec. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're gonna say, yes, I am a Christian. And I want you to hear me say, you are signing up to be weird. Our culture doesn't get it. And here's the deal, they ain't gonna get it trying to fight them to get it and live Christianly ain't gonna matter and it ain't gonna work. Embrace it. You're gonna have to embrace it. When Paul wrote this in the first century, he knew it was weird. He knew his culture went, that's crazy. And if you signed, if you said, hey, I'm in, I'm following Jesus, embrace it. Out there, they think this is weird. You know what, I'm, you, you feel it. You know that following Jesus with your sex ethic goes against the grain of most of everything that's around you in our culture. Now, let let me just take a moment, if I can, and speak to, maybe you're here and you're going, I like the culture's view. I think the Christians are weird. Let me just speak to you for me. This is really to all of us, but but I need us to interact with this because I think our culture thinks we've found this new enlightenment sexually, that we're free, that it's working Here's the issue. Our loneliness, our anxiety, our divorce are all through the roof. Sexual brokenness, people needing counseling through the roof. Doesn't seem to be working. Let me give us just two, I wanna interact with you on two things real fast. I'll let two people smarter than me help me. Uh, The first one is this. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says this, and he's right. He says, and I I think we have to understand what sex for marriage is doing. Sex within the context of marriage is a way to express something very important. Here, here's what he says. Sex is a way of saying to another person, I belong completely and totally and exclusively and permanently to you. And that's something that can only exist in the context of marriage. Sex is saying, I am taking off all of the mask. I'm taking off all of the pretense. And therefore, I'll take off all of my clothes and I'm giving myself to you. I am enabling myself to be vulnerable before you. Yes, you could wound me in return, but the covenant, the commitment, the promise is what will hold this together. And as such, it frees sex to be an act of giving away. 
an act of intimacy in building up the other person. That's the biblical concept of why sex matters and where it fits in the context of marriage. Now, hear me. If you're here, you say, I don't know if I buy all that Christian stuff. It seems very, it seems very backwards and suppressing of what I want to do. Hear me. Sex outside of marriage. If that's what sex is in the context of marriage, giving away, sex outside of marriage is the exact opposite. It is essentially you saying, I want to take from you. I'm not interested in you or you for the long haul. I want to take from you now. You're essentially saying, I don't want you. I just want your body. And it transforms sex from an act of giving away to an act of taking. In essence, sex becomes, the relationship becomes essentially like that between a customer and a client. You have your favorite coffee shop, your favorite chicken place, whatever it may be. You like that place because they meet your needs. You like that place because it makes you happy. You like the way that it tastes. You like the way that they treat you when you go there. So you keep going back, but they're just, you're a customer. They're your client. The second that something better comes along, a different coffee shop, a better coffee shop, something you like to taste better, second it comes along, you can bail. Nothing making you go back there. It's a customer and your client. That's all it is. Sex outside the context of marriage, it transforms sex into a customer-client kind of relationship. As long as you're meeting my needs, as long as you're attractive, as long as I'm happy and pleased by you, then this will keep going. And now some of you I know right now are going, no, 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 that's not, that's not us. Now, we have been, we've been in a relationship. We might even get married. We've been together for like a year and a half, and yeah, we're having sex, but we won't, we're going to get married. We might even get married. Can I just tell you? As long as that word might is in that sentence, you are in a customer-client relationship. What you're saying to that person is, I'm not ready to give you all of me. I'll just take all of you. And it seems like it's setting you all free, and it seems like it's wonderful, and it seems like it's benefiting you, but all you're doing is taking. You're saying, I'm not ready to give you that because what if something better comes along? What if, I, I don't, what if you don't please me in the next six months? Yeah, I'll be out. Second way I want to interact with this is uh, Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, uh, said this, and this is from a couple hundred years ago, really good. He says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator made known through Jesus. Hear me. That part of us that is filled with insecurity and anxiety desperately desires to be wanted and to, be feel, to feel beautiful, to feel value. If you are trying to get that, Pascal is saying anything else but God, it will ultimately rob you of joy and let you down. It will lead you to seek sex as a way to temporarily satisfy that. And it might. It might make you feel beautiful to go to bed with that person. It might make you feel manly to go to bed with that girl. It might make you feel impressive and powerful and that make give you pleasure. But what it is doing is it's temporarily numbing this deep need that we all have. And here's the issue. One, that need is still gonna be there the next morning when you wake up. But two, it's actually gonna be worse. If you're seeking your beauty through giving your body away because that person, man, the way they looked at me made me feel beautiful then what's hap- what, by the next morning, you know what happened? They were not interested in 
your beauty. They were interested in getting to know the real you. That's the part that's underneath that's feeling that anxiety. They were just interested in your exterior. They were just interested in your body. And now you will actually feel less beautiful the next day. Are, are you tracking? I, I understand that our culture thinks that it's awesome. They figured it out. And yet look around. So much brokenness, so many wounds, so much baggage, so much divorce. I know probably 30% of you are here and your parents got divorced. My parents got divorced. Both sides cheated. Wrecked me. Boy, it's working. Now, uh, three, three things as we close. Three, three quick things, like three practicals. The first is this. Uh, if you're here right now and you're going, I just need some help. Uh, I, I've got some wounds in my past or I got this pornography addiction or I got to process some stuff, then we would love to help you with that. Here's, here's three ways you can do it. The first is uh, this thing called Our Tribe. Go look it up. Go Google it. It is a pornography accountability app. And you're not going to like everything on it? Fine. But go give it a shot. If you got a pornography addiction, we would love to help you get out of that. It is rewiring your brain. Uh, Celebrate Recovery, we mentioned earlier, they meet right in here at 7 o'clock on Friday nights. Uh, They have step studies where you get to walk through your story, your life, your triggers, all that stuff. I've been through two of them, and I'm still like this. Uh, And so I'm not a good plug for CR. Try Celebrate Recovery on Friday night. Try getting into a step study. Yeah, it takes a long time. You might have to get up really early. That's okay. The third is this. This is why our ministry exists. Fellowship College is here because we want to come alongside you, and that's really difficult to do in a room with 450 people in it. We do that in the context of small groups and accountability. And if you go onto our bio or whatever it's called on Instagram, you can sign up for a small group there. You can sign up for discipleship. We would love to get you connected with people that are walking alongside you. Our second one is this, second practical. I got asked this two weeks ago when we did our Q&A. If you weren't here, I'll recap. Here's the question I get all the time. Uh, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get the Christian sex ethic. I get it. Seems a little restrictive. Now, the way it's asked is, how far is too far? Which is really a way of saying, how much sex can I get before I'm sinful? Usually what that question's actually getting at. What's, what's the line for me? And here's my answer to that. That's, that's the wrong question. Wrong question. You could work your way down from making out, making out on top of each other, oral sex, intercourse, and put your line somewhere in there. It ain't gonna matter. Here's why. You're not that dissimilar from probably everybody else in the room, and here's been my experience. When you draw a line, all you wanna do is cross that line in the moment. The wrong, the wrong question is how far is too far. The right question, you're gonna think this is super Christian, churchy, cheesy, but go here with me. The right question is, God's will is your holiness, so how holy is too holy? Here's what I would mean by that. What are the practical, wise steps that you need to take in your dating to keep you from getting to the place where you don't have to worry about a line? And if y'all aren't having that conversation early on in your dating, you're not gonna have successful dating. You're just gonna keep crossing the line and moving it down. You can't figure out what's going on. You need to set wise boundaries that's gonna keep you from getting to the moment where you gotta decide right then, am I crossing the line or not? Because usually you just will, unless you're just superhuman. All right, third one is this. Here's how we close. Um, how, how in the world do we do this? Like, this seems difficult. It seems, I know some of you are like, it seems kind of like a buzzkill. Like, it's not what everybody else is getting to do. Uh, I guess it's supposed to be better. I don't want to do that whole taking thing. But man, how do we get the strength for this? How do we get the guts for this, the grit for this? And I just want you to hear it. In the Old Testament, there is a book. It's a prophetic book called Hosea. 
and Hosea was a prophet of Israel. He's writing about 600 years before Jesus. And Hosea, as he's speaking into his culture, uh, God has him marry as an act of, as a public display of what's going on with the Lord, he goes and marries a prostitute. She's got an unfortunate name. Her name is Gomer. It's just a terrible name. And uh, he goes and marries Gomer, and she's a prostitute. And Gomer continually cheats on him. In fact, she gets pregnant with three kids. None of them are his. And yet the more she runs and the more she cheats and the more messed up she is, Hosea presses in more and more and more in love towards her. And then God is using this story as an illustration to say, that's how I am. I'm Hosea. And my people, Israel, and by extension, I think, uh, you're Gomer, all right? We're Gomer. And the point of the story is unfaithfulness, running, and mess-ups, and mistakes, and yet God keeps pressing in in love for her. And, And God actually says this about his people, Israel. He says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her out into the wilderness, and there I won't speak judgment over her, but I will speak tenderly to her. In that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me husband and no longer call me master. If you hear this radical Christian sex ethic and you go, I better just do it because God's the king and all, and I better surrender to him, you're thinking in terms of master, not husband. And the way you break through is you behold the goodness and awesomeness of God. Look at what he says. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in love, in compassion. I'm chasing after you in goodness and grace. That's how much I love you. And the way that we push in to this radical sex ethic is really pretty simple. We understand that everything we need, we've already got in him. All of the the beauty and the value that we could ever want, we've already got in him because he has sent his son into this world. That's how much he loves us. In the marriage passage in Ephesians 5, Paul says it this way, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might make her special, holy, the happy birthday plate, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church. Followers of Jesus in the room, the way we do this is not by white-knuckling through this. We do it by understanding. You're radiant, blameless, beautiful. Jesus took our place in the mess of all of our sexual brokenness. He entered into it, got it on himself so that you and I could be radiant. His radiance exchanged for our mess. And we behold it and say, wow, What more could I need? And when you have that shame flood in, radiant. Remind yourself, radiant. When you feel that desire to run and that desire to press into something that is not this sex ethic and you're going, this looks good. Remember, he's made me radiant. I've got everything I need. We're about to sing about it. Let me pray about it. Lord, we need you. And we trust you. And we believe, actually, that because of what you have done on our behalf for us, you've set us free, you've unlocked for us joy, we've got pleasure in you, you are the lover of our soul, the one that we need, help us to remember that, to know that, to trust that, to press into that. 
not as a master, as our husband. We love you, Jesus. We need you. We sing these words to you as our king, our glorious and great king. Amen. Let's sing.
we, we got a weird story. We got a, a Savior who conquered death by being crucified. And we got a weird story that that crucified one was resurrected on the third day and defeated the power of sin and death. And then he intersected that amazing grace purchased nearly two, over two, nearly 2,000 years ago. He intersected it with our lives and set us free. It's a weird story. And it's a story that our culture desperately needs to be set free, to experience the, the way that he designed this world to work with him uniting heaven and earth. Embrace it. You've got to embrace it. We walk with a, king, a crucified and resurrected king. We delight in him. We fix our eyes on him. He controls what we do, what we say. He, he direct control, direct this day, tomorrow, and the next day. If you need to process or talk or any of that, we would love to do that with you. You can hang out and just kind of stay in here. You, we'll meet you in the foyer. Otherwise, we'll see you out in the parking lot. I know it's kind of cold. We love y'all. We'll see you right back here next week. Have a great week, everybody. Enjoy. Have a great week.